The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled The ABCs of ADCs for Gynecologic Cancer. Expert insights on effective implementation and practical tips for use in patients with cervical, ovarian, or endometrial cancer. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash BVX860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Greetings and welcome. My name is Brad Monk. I'm a gynecologic oncologist here in Phoenix. We have two medical schools here, University of Arizona and Creighton. I'm a professor at both. I am so excited to welcome you to this educational activity entitled The ABCs of ADCs. For our tumors, gynecologic cancers, that's what we specialize in. Uh, Expert insights on effective implementation and practical tips for use in patients with cervical, ovarian, and endometrial cancer. This will be fair, balanced, and hopefully comprehensive. I'm honored to welcome my good friend and colleague, Dr. Anna Oaknen. Uh, say hello, Anna. Hello, Brad. You know, it's my pleasure to be with you here and to review this exciting field that is ABC. My name is Anna Oaknen. I'm medical oncology by training. I'm heading an ecological cancer program at Valdebron Institute of Oncology in Barcelona, Spain. Thank you for having me in this important meeting. Let's go ahead and get started and create some background. I think everyone here has heard about antibody drug conjugates, but probably not so much in gynecologic cancers. We have two antibody drug conjugates that are approved in gynecologic cancers in some parts of the world, and we're going to talk about them. That's the ADC against the folate receptor alpha in ovarian cancer, mervituximab sorbentansine, and tezodomab vidotin in cervical cancer uh, against tissue factor. The good news is, is that these are happening very quickly. We have new data to show you, probably data that you have not seen. Uh, we really need to try to uh, get the, the right uh, treatment uh, in the right patient at the right time for the right outcome. Right. It it sounds uh, easier uh, than it is. Um, uh, And we have a number of different perspectives. Obviously, probably the most important perspective is what patients want to know. Um, Most of them uh, are not familiar with this concept of an antibody drug conjugate. Uh, Quite frankly, they want to know what's in it for them. They want to know what the benefit is. Uh, They want to know if there are multiple antibody drug conjugates for them, how they sort of choose the menu And in addition to what the benefit is, they want to know what the downside is. What's the inconvenience? What are the side effects? And then ultimately, they want to know why you think as the provider that this particular antibody drug conjugate is best for them based on their prior history, their existing toxicities, and and their biomarker. Now, what we as clinicians have to know is we need to understand the entire menu because generally these are not used in combinations and you have to pick and it's a shared decision. Uh, We want to integrate them. As I said, there are already two antibody drug conjugates that are approved in gynecologic cancer. uh, And there are some workflow challenges. There are some unique toxicities, some interstitial lung disease, which we call pneumonitis. There's some ocular toxicities. And, and, And in doing that, we have to be aware, right? If we're not aware as clinicians, we're never going to deliver elite medical care. And if we're aware, we can monitor. And if we monitor, we can identify and mitigate. So so we have to start with education. That's what we're here today to do. Uh, And 
I, I know you have a general understanding uh, about antibody drug conjugates, but I'm going to talk uh, about how targets are chosen in the upper left-hand corner. Uh, they have to be homogeneous and they have to be preferentially expressed on the tumor. Uh, uh, and ultimately, the goal is to internalize the antibody drug conjugate target so that it can be disassociated and cytotoxic in the cell. Uh, and obviously, even though the receptors are common, very little else of these three components, the antibody linker and payload, are common among the ADCs. So the antibody matters, uh, uh, and it, there, it has to be uh, generally chimeric, so a humanized or a fully human, which decreases the uh, uh, immunogenicity of the antibody. Uh, payloads are really evolving. Um, they have to be highly potent. Uh, there's sort of two classes, uh, microtubule inhibitors and DNA damaging agents, uh, such as the topoisomerase inhibitors. You have to be able to link it to the antibody with a linker. Uh, and then ultimately you want a high antibody drug ratio, a DAR if you will, but one that's not unstable. Because if the stability is not maintained, then the medication is not preferentially located into the tumor. I've worked with uh, to develop this list. It's not comprehensive, but it's pretty good, if I may say so. Uh, it talks about the antibody drug conjugate name, the target, the antibody, most of which are IgG1s, the linker, most of which are cleavable, the payloads, which can be categorized into ver various opportunities, and then ultimately FDA approved. I talked about the two. You see the two uh, stars. Uh, you also see others that maybe will get FDA approval soon. They're stars, but not filled in. And then others that are um, under uh, study. I want to talk a little bit about this MMAE. Uh, MMAE stands for monomethyl uh, or a statin E. Uh, it's an anti-metabolite. Why do I talk about it? Because it's part of the FDA approved zotamabidotin. So that's just an example. We'll get into DM4. We'll get into aribulin, a very, another very nice anti-tubulin, and then some of the topoisomerase inhibitors. So uh, this, this is exciting. Uh, Anna, thank you for being here. Uh, are antibody drug conjugates available in the clinic yet in, in Europe? What's the state of the science in Europe? It may be different than what it is in the U.S. Yeah, I mean, thank you, Bram, for this excellent introduction. I think, you know, ADC is a kind of revolution in the treatment line scheme for gynecological tumor. We are seeing very compelling data. We are seeing phase three, positive phase three clinical trial that I've never seen before in ovarian cancer, in cervical cancer. Unfortunately, the regulatory approval in Europe is always behind um, in the state, but I think we are on the right pathway, and hopefully soon we have the approval for pisotumab vedotin in cervical cancer and mirbetuximab in platinum-resistant ovarian cancer. We are very eager to have this ADC for our patient because, I mean, we will review right now, the data are really compelling and are changing the natural history, history sorry, of our patients' outcomes. You know, another one that I'm excited about and what is on that list is the HER2 ADCs. Uh, as you know, trastuzumab, deruxtecan, you're going to show us the wonderful data. Um, but on the September 20th NCCN guideline update, it was listed as a level 2A 
for HER2, uh, 2 plus and 3 plus uh, cervix and endometrial cancer. The ovarian guideline update hasn't come out yet. So that, that gives access to us based on the data that you're going to show. Do you have opportunity to use TDXD in Europe yet? Absolutely. I mean, we have the opportunity to use this magnificent agent through the clinical trial. So, and I review right now the data that has been presented in several meetings. I have my own experiences. I, I was really involved in the in the development of this molecule, and I think that the data are not only amazing how the patient responds. How you, I mean, you feel how your patient experience this great response with this trastuzumab derustecam uh, agent is, is really amazing. Yeah, and we're lucky to have you today. Um, you're at the top of the tip of the spear, as I say, in the clinical trial development. Issue factor is preferentially overexpressed on metastatic cervical cancer. It is uh, a transmembrane receptor for coagulation factor seven and seven A part of the coagulation uh, cascade. Uh, so it is involved in angiogenesis. And as you know, angiogenesis is a very important anti-cancer target in cervical cancer with the global approval also of bevacizumab. Uh, cervical cancer remains an unmet need. Um, if we learned anything from COVID, we learned that if you don't get vaccinated, you might die of that you know, COVID vac- uh, virus. And the same thing here. We can prevent cervical cancer, but if you don't get vaccinated, which continues to be common, you might die of an HPV-related cancer, not just cervical cancer, but numerous others. Um, And so we're trying, you and I together and the rest of the team, to develop other medications. And obviously, we have uh, anti-angiogenic checkpoint inhibitors, but sort of the third wave here is antibody drug conjugates and now against tissue factor. We received accelerated approval and now... Uh, at ESMO, uh, just recently in Madrid, Spain, your beautiful country. Thank you for hosting us. Uh, we have <laughs> we have the randomized phase three confirmatory trial. So, to your point, this is going to bring this medication to other countries that don't have it. Uh, this was a, an NGOT led uh, uh, GOG participating study presented by Ignace for Goat uh, at uh, ESMO. Uh, it was basically second-line patients, so patients who had failed platinum, taxane, generally bevacizumab, sometimes even checkpoint, uh, and versus physician's choice chemotherapy, which are these five agents, which has been the standard for another approval. Target enrollment was 502 patients, and you can see the answer is yes. Substantially better from an overall survival perspective uh, with a very dramatic improvement in survival. And that's what we're trying to do. Help patients live uh, better and live longer. Hazard ratio 0.70. Also an improvement in progression-free survival uh, with a hazard ratio of 0.67. So I think this transformational study, uh, this met its primary endpoint. uh, And you can see the uh, improvement in in overall survival rate still relatively low at 17.8%. But chemotherapy was less than a third of that. 5.2%. 5.2%. And you also see that there were a number of patients that had significant tumor shrinkage, but didn't quite qualify for a resist 1.1 response. And when they did respond, the disease control, the median duration of response uh, was, was, was five months. I want to uh, discuss a, a paper that was just published in the Journal of Clinical Oncology. These are the two presentations uh, to combine 
Tizotamab be dotin with other active agents, including carboplatin, bevacizumab, and pembrolizumab. So on the left, uh, uh, presented two years ago, the safety, is it safe? And then on the right, presented at ESMO last year, the efficacy. And yes, it is safe. And you can see that carboplatin, tizotamab, bedotin in the first line, pretty interesting, has a response rate of 55%. You see the box. Carboplatin paclitaxel in the same setting is 30%. So I'm not sure we can really compare carboplatin paclitaxel versus TV carboplatin, but it is inferentially interesting and there was no increase in adverse events. So now this antibody drug conjugate uh, has uh, uh, three adverse events of uh, special interest uh, because of the mechanism of action of the antimitotic uh, payload neuropathy. And this is managed just like you manage neuropathy in other settings. Because it was part of the tissue cascade, tissue factor um, clotting cascade, we monitored bleeding. Generally, this was epistaxis, sometimes even cystitis, radiation cystitis or hematuria or tumor bleeding, but it was higher, and you see uh, that as well as the neuropathy. Uh, There's been some discussion about the ocular adverse events. Um, The ocular adverse events are a surface. So the surface of the eye obviously is the conjunctiva and the cornea. Uh, an inflammation of either one of those would be conjunctivitis or keratitis, respectively. Conjunctivitis causes a red eye or pink eye. And if the cornea is inflamed, it causes blurred vision. So it's actually very simple to screen patients for this because you look at their eyes and they're not red or they are. And ultimately, you, look, you examine their visual acuity and you can rapidly and accurately assess the level of surface adverse events. Importantly, there were no grade four or fives. Importantly, dose discontinuation due to ocular events and peripheral neuropathy was 5.6%. And importantly, there is a plan to mitigate these. We use this routinely in the U.S. Um, uh, We're excited to do that. Um, I want to ask you, Anna, can the optometrist, the person that fits glasses, provide and prescribe steroids, or do you have to go to an ophthalmologist MD in Europe? Yeah, thank you. I mean, thank you for bringing this important question, Brad. Unfortunately, in Europe, um, you know, optometrists cannot prescribe medication. But the good thing is our ophthalmologists are already very well trained in preventing and treating ADC eye toxicity. I mean, you know, the tisotumab vedotin associated side effect because and at least in the main university hospital across Europe, our ophthalmologists have been integrated in our team. They are seeing our patients previous every other dose of tisotumab vedotin, and then they are very well trained and then they are spreading the knowledge on how to manage this side effect across their society. So although we don't have the optometrist involved, we have the ophthalmology and they are very keen to collaborate with us because they are very aware that this is a new and important drug for our patient, that this drug has shown an improvement in overall survival for a really unmet need population of patients. So I think we can count on them. That's really great. Very interesting. So in the uh, accelerated approval, which I didn't show you, 
just like 301, it was the same. There was only a baseline exam. Okay. When we got FDA approval through the accelerated approval, it said you got to see the eye professional has to see the patient every cycle, which created some, some challenges. 301, it was the same as 204. You only needed one exam. The difference, though, in 301 and 204 is that there was a steroid drop the day before the treatment. And my sense is, and we still are breaking down the data because the 301 data is very new. The randomized trial data are new. But I think that that day before dose was really impactful. What we do after that is the patient comes in and and, uh, gets a vasoconstrictor. If we another dose of steroid and then a cold pack, again, uh so we do those three things, vasoconstrictor, steroid, again, the one you did before, and then the cold pack, you continue the steroid drop. Now, steroids have side effects. So uh, patients, you know, they want to overachieve and do more. So we only say, look, let's just do one drop three times a day. And if you want to be an overachiever, then the lubricating drops. So if you tell us your experience. I mean, to your point, I think that the mitigation measure that we have implemented in the treatment of TB have been key. I mean, they have absolutely changed the safety profile, the tolerability on how the patient can continue under a therapy that really impacts on the outcome. So as you have very nicely explained, you know, corticosteroid hydro, lubricated hydro, and the cold pad are key. And in addition, I think, Brandon, it's very important that physicians are aware of this potential eyesight effect. And then, you know, we evaluate very, I mean, I would say in depth, every patient, every BC, and then we need to stop just for a while and then to reintroduce once again when the patient has recovery from the eye toxicity. I mean, this allows us to continue therapy for our patients. You know, that's a really good point. Like many uh, anti-cancer therapies, you can interrupt, recover, and dose reduce. So there's lots of flexibility. Uh, I find in my personal experience, if there isn't an interruption, it's generally for neuropathy, um, and, and that's sort of usual and customary. Um, so so I, I did a lot of talking, and, and I'm really excited to hear your perspectives on some of these other ADCs, particularly folate receptor alpha and HER2. So uh, why don't you go ahead and take control of the slides and take it away. Good to hear from you. Happy so. Um, I'm sure that all of you have already learned from Bractol how ADC works. So, so it's clear that ADC need to target a specific tumor associated antigen to work. And in this regard, why folate receptor alpha is an appropriate and ideal target for ovarian cancer and ADC in a very brief manner? Folate receptor alpha is a membrane protein that is restricted in normal cells, but highly overexpressed on the surface of a number of cancer cells. Indeed, high-grade serous ovarian cancer, approximately 8% of these cells are positive for some expression of folate receptor alpha. And notably, folate receptor alpha expression is retained in recurrent and metastatic tumor and is not significantly altered in response um, to chemotherapy. So then what are the ADC targeting folate receptor alpha that we hit either in clinical development 
or already approved in gynecological tumor. Let's start with two of them, namely mirbetuximab and lubelkamab. Mirbetuximab is clear that is the first in class ABC targeting for a receptor alpha. The cytotoxic payload is DM4. I mean, it causes a mitotic arrest and apoptosis, and notably, Blast has already explained. DMM4, I mean, the payload diffuses through the cell membrane, allowing a biostandard killing of adjacent tumor cells. What is the other one, lubeltamab? What do we know about lubeltamab? What is the payload for lubelta? The payload is a microtubule inhibitor, a miasterlin. And this payload is efficiently released in, in the tumor cell, but not in the circulation. This is very important to understand the safety profile of this drug. So then we are talking about folate receptor alpha as a target. So, then the point is, or the question is, how can we identify this target to select the appropriate population to receive this therapy? We know that the expression of folate receptor alpha on the surface of serious epithelial ovarian cancer is assessed by immunohistochemistry, and there are different scoring systems to determine the expression. So, what data do we have in the clinic with mirbetuximab? I mean, as you are very aware, and I would like to review that the Soraya trial is the first study that led to a change in the therapeutic landscape of recurrent ovarian cancer. And why? The objective of the Soraya trial was to evaluate the safety of mirbetuximab in patients with high expression of folate receptor alpha and platinum-resistant relapse. Then, two key points that you need to know. You know, the folate receptor alpha, as I mentioned before, we determine according PS2, greater or equal 75% of cells. And another point, you know, in this trial, all patients must have received previous bevacizumab. The trial met its objective, overall response rate, and you can see overall response rate was 32.4%, very meaningful. And in addition, 71% of patients experience tumor reduction. This is very important in a typically very symptomatic disease. In addition, median duration of response, say 6.9 months. So in light of this result, FDA approved in 2022 mirbetuximab for folate receptor alpha-positive platinum-resistant epithelial ovarian cancer. In parallel, GOG as lead group and ENGOT as collaborative group, you know, develop the confirmatory phase three trial. And the confirmatory phase three trial was the Mirasol study. And you can see Mirasol GOG 3045, ENGOT OV55. It's an open label, phase three, that includes patients with platinum-resistant ovarian cancer. Importantly, once again, you know, high expression of folate receptor alpha according to PS2+. In addition, in this trial, the use of bevacizumab was not mandatory. I mean, the patients were allowed to participate in the trial either with or without receiving bevacizumab. Patients were randomized in a one-to-one -one fashion to receive mirbetuximab or investigator-choice chemotherapy. Primary endpoint, PFS. Key secondary endpoint, overall response rate and overall survival. 
And here you are. The trial was positive. The trial met its primary endpoint, BFS, with a hazard ratio of 0.65. You know, it's mean that mirbetuximab reduced 35% compared with chemotherapy, the risk of death of progression. Indeed, when you look at the median PFS, it was 3.5 for investigator short chemotherapy and increasing clinically significant for mirbetuximab 5.62 months. What about the key secondary endpoint? Overall survival was also positive with a hazard ratio 0.67. Median overall survival for standard art chemotherapy 12 months, by 12.75 months, increasing to 16.46. And please allow me to make a remark here. This is the first phase three clinical trial that has been able to show an improvement in overall survival in the platinum-resistant ovarian cancer population. The other key points, uh, key secondary endpoint, overall response rate, also in favor of mirbetuximab, 42% for mirbetuximab compared with 16% for investigator short chemotherapy. So we are very eager to have this mirbetuximab in our clinic. The other ADC, Lubelta, has been analyzed in this phase one study, SUTRO002 GM1. We enroll patients with recurrent disease regardless of folate receptor alpha expression. So, since we enroll patients regardless of folate receptor alpha expression, this level was retrospectively determined using immunohistochemistry and remember, according to TPS score. Then we randomized patients into cohort 4.3, lower dose, 5.2, higher dose, primary endpoint, overall response rate. As you can see here, you know, the drug show a 31.7% overall response rate in unselected population. And then when you see the water for plus, you know, every bar represents target ratio for one patient. And it seems and appears that the higher dose represented in that group, 5.2, I mean, induce a higher responses compared with the lower dose. Now, you know, GOG and ENGOT in collaboration, we are working in the phase three trial to prove that Lubelta is also superior to chemotherapy in the resistance setting. So, Malubelta has also been development in endometrial cancer following the phase one. I mean, we have run the expansion cohort. In this case, we enroll patients with endometrial cancer who have received at least one previous line of therapy. And in this case, you know, the selection, I mean, the cutoff for folate receptor alpha positivity was only 1%. And as you can see, you know, those patients with tumor with greater or equal 1% folate receptor alpha expression the overall response was 19% in those with folate receptor greater than 25%, 29%. And this is very preliminary data. This is a small sample size. But I think that warrants further investigation of the ABC Lubelta in endometrial cancer. And then another important uh, ABC that is also under development, MORAB202. MORAB202 also called farletuzumab ecteribibulin, I think I pronounced correctly, is an ABC comprised of the humanized antifolate receptor alpha monoclonal antibody, farletuzumab, a cytotoxic microtubule inhibitor, eribulin, 
and a clickable linker. In the expansion cohort from the phase one study 101, and in which we saw really promising activity with an overall response rate of 31.6% in the platinum resistance setting with the lower dose, 0.9, and 50% of responses in the higher dose. What was the issue in this trial, the ILD and pneumonitis? So in order to clarify what is the best dose in terms of efficacy and safety profile, now we are under development with this trial, analyzing two different doses, 33 milligram per meter square and 25 milligram per meter square. And now we are in another expansion and phase to trial. We are working there with the dose of 25 milligram per meter square that it seems to be associated with a lower incident of ILD. So, we have another important target. I mean, Brad has mentioned at the beginning of the talk, HER2. I mean, this target is revolutionary in the gynec tumor, and it has been in another field uh, like a breast cancer and gastric cancer. I mean, you know very well that HER2, I mean, could be amplify mutations or amplification, and all of them, you know, have a clear impact as predictive and pronostic factor in breast and gastric cancer. The point is that this pronostic and predictive factor is not really well understood in gynecological tumor. In addition, the real prevalence of HER2 overexpression in gynec tumor yet to be defined. We know that the overexpression ranges from 21% in cervical cancer, 27% in ovarian cancer. In endometrial, the overexpression depends on the histology. We know that those serous histology are associated with a higher overexpression. And in addition, there's another important uh, key point is that since in breast and in gastric cancer, as you can see in the slide, the guideline to determine the overexpression on her is very well established according to the CAP and ASCO what happened in gynec. We are still working on that. And in the majority of clinical trials, we use the gastric or breast cancer guideline. And in the practical, in the daily, in the daily basis, it depends most of the institution. So, Trastuzumab delustecam. Trastuzumab delustecam is a turning point in the treatment of solid tumor and gynecological tumor cannot be different. As you know, trastuzumab delustecam is anti-HER2 ADC. The payload is a topoisomerized one inhibitor, high drug antibody ratio, eight high drug antibody ratio, sorry for repeating, and in addition, a very well-established by standard anti-tumor effect. What do we know so far of the activity of trastuzumab derustecam in gynecological tumor? And destiny pan tumor cell 2, I think, has been once again a turning point in the treatment of solid tumor. In this phase two trial, we enroll different types of solid tumor, including three cohorts of gynec tumor, endometrial, cervical, or ovaria. In each cohort, we include 40 patients. Very remarkable. We include very heavily treated population, at least half of the patient have received a medium of three prior line of therapy. Secondary a, a point that I would like to stress, 
all patients have an overexpression of HER2, either 2 plus or 3 plus, determined according locally or centrally. This is very important. And when the overexpression was determined um, centrally, it was according to the gastric guideline. What was the primary endpoint for destiny pantumor CO2? Overall response rate. Secondary endpoint, duration of response, and PFS. And here you are the exciting data that we have. Look at the overall response rate and median duration of response. Starting with endometrial in 3 plus 84.6 overall response rate. Amazing. Look at cervical, 75%. It's almost the same response that we are seeing. It's true in first line with four drugs. And in ovarian, 63%. And when you look at the median duration of response, it's not yet rich in endometria, 14.2 months in cervical, 11.3 in ovarian. Honestly, compelling and amazing results. Moving forward, PFS is truly secondary endpoint, but look at the Kaplan-Meier curve. If you look at for all patients, endometrial median PFS 11.1, in cervical 7 months, and in ovarian cancer 5.9. But I would like to draw your attention for the 3 plus median PFS, not rich in endometrial cancer, not rich either in cervical cancer. And Brad mentioned, you know, this uh, this therapy has been listed in the new updated NCC guideline for cervical endometrial cancer tumor 2 plus or 3 plus. So, turning to safety, and then we will start with Brad. When you look at the safety profile of Trastuzumab Derustecan, Please take into account that this is all patients enrolled, not only in the gynae uh, cohort. When we look at the rate of discontinuation due to treatment emerging adverse event, it was around 8.6%, a low rate of discontinuation. And the most common drug-related treatment adverse event, if we look at the grade 3, it was neutropenia, anemia, and thrombocytopenia. And ILD, once again, ILD is a, is a key a safety issue with Rastuzumab derusteca. When you look at the overall incident, once again, in the whole patient, 267 patients was 10.5%. But most of them grade 1 and grade 2. Only 1 grade 3 and only, and unfortunately, 3 grade uh, 5. So, now I would like to discuss with you about how you manage uh, this potential uh, side effect from trastuzumab derusteca in the clinic, how you educate, how you inform your patients about the possibility either to receive this therapy and the safety profile of this drug. Yeah, thank you. That's a lot. Uh, I can't believe that uh, that we're doing so much as a team, um, both within NGOT, within the GOG, to bring these medicines to the clinic. Um, my experience with trastuzumab drexacan is uh, limited, only a handful of patients, but I have participated in their clinical trials. Here's the lesson that I learned, is that when we scan these patients for response, you should scan the lungs. I get it. We generally scan the base of the lungs when we do an abdominal and, and pelvic CT, but many of these patients are uh, asymptomatic. You'll see a ground glass or an interstitial infiltrate. 
Um, and if they're asymptomatic, then certainly interruption uh, of the inter- uh, medication and then maybe even a, a, a Medrol dose pack, just sort of a short burst of steroids. Uh, we ask patients to monitor themselves um, uh, routinely, uh, and we do that. And green scan, synergy, suspend treatment, and steroids. It's, it's a wonderful opportunity. I, I think it all starts with testing. It all starts with testing. And so uh, now we are uh, doing what I call Promise Plus in endometrial cancer, which uh, is the plus is, is HER2 testing. Uh, we have a lab actually right here in Phoenix called Keras that does this. Um, you outlined the biomarker very well. So because a breast cancer HER2 is circumferential, rather basolateral or lateral, basically all uh, uh, gastric cancers are, are, are not necessarily breast positive, but all breast positive is gastric cancer positive. Uh, we don't really know uh, the overlap, um, but it's, 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 it's really, really uh, interesting. Um, probably the most transformational ADC small study that I saw at ESMO was Katie Moore's presentation of CADHERIN-6, uh, uh, RDXD as opposed to TDXD, um, and uh, DS6000. Uh, the, the waterfall plot uh, here uh, is substantial. Uh, there is sacituzumab on the right. Can't really compare, um, but I think we have, you know, trope two on the right, cat here and six on the left. We're going to have to prioritize. And um, I kind of like that, that we have many active agents. Um, the, the targets are different. I get it. Um, but there might be some overlap in the resistance mechanism. So we're going to have to be smart as we integrate and study both of these uh, agents uh, in, in, in the clinic. There was a uh, Vidotin uh, B7H4. There's at least three that I have in my sort of thought process. Uh, a, a very unique immune checkpoint inhibitor uh, that can act as an antibody drug conjugate target. Um, this is with Vidotin. Vidotin obviously is a validated linker payload combination to Zotamab Vidotin. And there were a substantial uh, or at least provocative small sample size responses in endometrial and ovarian cancer uh, uh, from uh, uh, Professor or Dr. Perez from Orlando, Florida's presentation. Um, uh, alkaline phosphatase, uh, placental uh, phosphatases are also interesting. Uh, and, and we'll see what happens uh, in, in that landscape. So this, this has been very comprehensive. I want to thank you, Anna, for, for joining us. I'm going to give you the last word, uh, uh, maybe in sort of summarizing what the immediate next steps are in Europe uh, for bringing these medicines to the patient. Um, it has been a really a pleasure to share this time with you, Brian. I always learn from you. So I think my, my, the bottom line of this session is that ADC is really the next step in personalized medicine. ADCs are transforming the treatment landscape for our patient with gynae tumor. We should continue on this pathway, and I'm sure that we are working on improving our patient outcome. We are getting there, and we are moving forward with the ADC clinical development. So, you know, hang on there. Yeah, thank you. And, you know, I look at this as the fifth wave. You know, chemotherapy was uh, important, particularly, you know, paclitaxel, anti-angiogenics, particularly bevacizumab. 
and then a whole host of PARP inhibitors and immune therapies, that's four. This is the fifth wave, antibody drug conjugates. And I appreciate, Anna, for everything that you're doing in the clinical trial landscape. I hope to see you soon in person and catch up. And thank you to our listeners. Uh, so long for now. Thank you. This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash BVX860. This activity is supported by independent educational grants from AstraZeneca, Daiichi Sankyo Incorporated, Azi Incorporated, and Cgen and GenMab.